Would you join me? <laughs> Would you join me in turning to uh, Romans 13? We're first into 13 now in our journey through Romans. We must be close to 50 sermons or so by now. I, I'm not actually sure. Um, in our in our ongoing effort to preach through whole books of the Bible for as long as it takes, we arrive at Romans. 13. I'll say, too, as the thought crosses my mind, I'm pretty sure I'm going to go with Matthew for after Romans, um, the gospel according to Matthew. That's coming quicker than I, than I sort of was anticipating, having to pick another book to preach through. Uh, being in Romans 13 kind of signaled me to look into that a little bit. But today, Romans 13, 1 through 7, the title, The Christian and the State. Wonderful Thanksgiving topic, I guess. It is what it is. Well, in Romans 13, Paul is still working out his call to godliness that began at the beginning of chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The application of all of the gospel truths, all those doctrinal truths in chapters 1 through 11. And what Paul is on about here in our text, is that sooner or later, Christians in every country have to think about their relationship to the state, to the varying degrees of human government all around them. You will come to terms with some of that eventually, depending on where and when you are. That total dedication to God, which Paul calls for at the beginning of chapter 12, being transformed in one's thinking and not being conformed to this world, that total dedication involves thinking as a Christian with regard to how one relates to governing authorities, from police officers and city councilors to governors, senators and presidents, all of these and everything around and in between. Authorities which are put there by God and are under the sovereign authority of God, according to His good designs and for your good and for His glory. And to put even a finer point on it, one of the ways that Christians express their commitment to God is in how they relate to rulers, authorities, and the laws of the state. But are there any exceptions even as it seems from the way you'll see Paul writes of it here, that there are not. Aren't there exceptions to this call to be submissive to our elders and leaders and authorities? Certainly there is a place for civil disobedience, isn't there? Even as displayed in the New Testament and then throughout church history, right? Isn't there? And how should we think about all this as Christians. Well, this is our task for these few minutes this morning. Before we turn to the text, let's pray once more and ask the Lord's blessing, as we always do, before we read His Word. Father, thank You for this time. Thank You for Your Word and a time to look into it and to proclaim its truths, to herald the wonderful designs and truths and doctrines of, of your word, of your will, of your gospel, of your gospel's effect on your people and the world. Help us to, to consider these things deeply and humbly and guard us into the truth, guide us into the truth, we say, we ask, and guard us from error, we ask, 
would you do that? And, and help us to see. We know that spiritual things, seeing spiritually and humbly, comes from the Spirit. And so we look to you and ask for your help. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. I note there's a period right there. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The holy and inerrant word of God. All right, there are four points today. This first one is, is, is the main one, I think. Longest one, anyways. Verses 1 and 2, the Christian's submission to human government. The Christian's submission to human government or, or the state. Verses 1 and 2. So, the first bit of verse 1 again. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, human government, the state. Christians are to be good citizens. Is that a controversial thing to say? I I don't know. Christians are to be good citizens, even the best citizens, obeying those in power as the leaders of the land. Spiritual relationships do not overthrow natural relationships. Christians may not justify lawlessness on the grounds that the state is not Christian. Therefore, we, we don't need to obey. Let every person, including all Christians, be subject to the governing authorities. Broad, universal principle, period. Paul gives his reason for this. Receive the clear teaching of God's Word. This is not unclear now. The rest of verse 1 and 2. For, basis, for 
There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Do you see? So, the starting point for Paul's argument and the ground of the believer's relationship to the state is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. In this case, in regard to human rulers. God is sovereign, totally in authority over and in control, always of all of His creation. Therefore, those who exercise authority do so because God has established them in their positions. God Himself controls the authorities that He puts into position. Therefore, Paul argues, and we're just going along with the argument, this is God's Word, friends. Civil disobedience is, generally speaking, disobedience toward God, argues the Apostle Paul. No exceptions here, no caveats. Well, let's do this bit here then now. Just let me just, uh, there's a begging that happens in the mind. It happened in my mind. Like, you're going to say something about exceptions, aren't you? Well, let's do this a little bit now. Just to seed it here and say some broader biblical things. I'll come back to this. But let's do this bit here now. There are two exceptions to the universality of that command in verse 1 that we know of from the Scriptures, and that's therefore all there is. One is when government commands us to stop doing what God commands us to do. When government commands us to stop doing what God commands us to do. That's an exception. If, if the government ever reaches the point where it commands us to do that which God forbids, we cannot obey government. Or the inverse is what I mean to say there. When the government commands us to stop doing what God commands, we cannot obey the government. The classic example of this is found in Acts 4 and 5 when the authorities arrested the disciples for preaching and summoned them before the Sanhedrin, ordering them not to teach the name of Jesus, which they are commanded to do. And the disciples rightfully disobeyed and went right back to their preaching, and then they're brought, ushered in before the high priest, where they're told, quote, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And then Peter and the other apostles then told them those famous words, well, we must obey God rather than men. God commands us to do something. You command us to stop. We obey God, not you. The command of God always overrules the command of human government, the state. There are no exceptions. 
Christians, in that regard, there's no exceptions to that rule. Christians can never violate a command of God regardless of what the state says. And the other exception of two only is that we cannot do what government commands us to do if God forbids that thing. We cannot do what government commands us to do if God forbids that thing. Christians must never think it okay to commit immoral or unethical acts because the state has requested it of us or commanded it of us. When they tell us to do what God told us not to do, at that point we must be disobedient toward the state. It may cost the Christian much, maybe freedom, maybe our lives, but Christians in those situations throughout history go to jail or to their deaths realizing they go there in obedience to God. But apart from those difficult circumstances where the exceptions apply, in all other circumstances we are called to submit biblically to the government which is over us. There is a universality, a broad expectation in Romans 13.1a, isn't there? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This is, this is the main idea, and the rest of these verses support that idea, that principle. We are to respect and obey authority. We are to submit to authority. God's world is a world filled with and ordered by authorities, by hierarchical relationships. And as part of that ordered world, God has designed human government to be society's protectors and the enforcers of civil order and law. Perhaps the most simple and straightforward example of this is the work of local police officers. An example that takes all of this right down to our very streets, to the safety and security afforded us in front of our homes, in front of our businesses, where we drive, where we walk, where our children play, where they enforce the order which God has designed. What a grace that is. What a grace that is. Part of what theology calls common grace. You enjoy that. The benefits of that. What a precious, wonderful thing. The very clear principle, each of us is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Now, let's loop back and and build more on that basis which Paul gives for this very clear and general principle still now in verses 1 and 2. Paul tells us why we are to respond to civil authority, whether it's at a national level, a state level, or the local level, whether we're talking about America and South Dakota in 2022 or, or Rome in the first century and everything before and in between and after in this world. We are to su submit to all of them, and there is good reason why. Again, second bit of verse 1 and verse 2, first half of verse 2, read this way again. For there is no authority except from God. Just to make sure you couldn't misunderstand, the rest of verse 1 says... And those that exist, which is all of them that do, 
have been instituted, every single one of them, by God. First half of verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. This is very simple math, isn't it? It's not hard to understand. Not at all. Very clear. So let's, let's break down Paul's reason for our obedience. There's three bits to this. First, authority is by de- divine decree. Authority is by divine decree. Civil authority comes directly from God. That's the implication, isn't it? There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Civil authority comes directly from God. When God created humanity and designed our life on the earth, God designed authority structures. Three basic institutions, three, as theology calls them, spheres of authority, marriage and family, the church, and civil government, or the state. Marriage and family. You know more Intimately that one, I suppose, we all are born of mothers, and many have mothers and fathers, and many of us are in families now, married, children, so forth. So we have intimate knowledge of this, marriage and family. It's a sphere of authority. God designed in the very beginning that a man and a woman would leave their parents and come together in a union, an institution known as a marriage, and that out of that marriage would come a distinct family, which is the basic unit of social life and society as a whole. It is a sphere of authority in which there is husband who is head and wife who is called to joyfully submit, children who are called to obey their parents. The verses should be popping in your head for all of those. That's one sphere. The second one is the church or the people of God. God has a people whose life He leads, controls, and orders, and they are in society, and in these times between the times, they're in the world. They are in the world the standard bearer for God's Word and His will. They are the symbol of, or a glimpse of, uh, the promise of, a heavenly life with God. God has instituted a people to be salt and light in this world. That is a sphere of authority unto itself, the Marriage and family cannot dictate to the church. The state cannot dictate to the church. It's not their sphere. And then there's the third one, civil government or the state. God ordained it for the protection and the preservation of social order and for the punishment of those who do evil. Civil government exists because God designed it. We'll speak more of the purpose of government when we get to verses 4 and 5. So what this verse says, these end of 1 and beginning of 2, what's said here is simply that there is no authority of any kind except from God. God has created the social order, and human government is by God's design. No tyrant ever seized power, but a sovereign God had to ordain it, had to allow it. And somehow within the sovereignty of God, it fulfills His purpose. He providentially works His purposes through to the end, through sinful and sometimes righteous actors. The second bit, the first is that authority is by divine decree. These are bits of 
of Paul's reason for the command at the beginning of verse 1. The first, authority is by divine decree. Second bit, second part of Paul's reason for our obedience, coming now from verse 2, resistance to government is rebellion against God. Sin against civil authority is a sin against God who put that authority there. Just, just so we're clear, re- read it again. Verse 2a, therefore, whoever resists the authorities, there's no exceptions listed there, no caveats, just this broad general rule. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Whoever resists, whoever lines up against, whoever sets themselves against the government, the general rule here is you are in fact resisting against God Himself. You are lining up against God Himself. You are setting yourself up against God Himself. This is the general principle. And it isn't unclear, is it? And since Paul is writing to Christians in Rome in the first century, let's just consider this. It was not consequential whether the Roman emperor was elected by the people, whether he was appointed by the Senate, or whether he was placed by the military, or whether he stuck a knife in someone's back, or whether he inherited it by family. Not consequential with regard to your obedience. That didn't matter. It was not consequential whether the imperial authority asserted by Caesar was just, was just or unjust, or whether Caesar was good or bad. He's bad, so I'm not going to obey. Oh, no, no. We know his authority was often unjust, and that Caesar, whichever one, was terribly wicked often. We know this, but that was not an issue, not of first importance, at any rate, with regard to this command of Scripture. Even so, Paul says to the Roman Christians, submit to Caesar. And it wasn't long after this until Caesar would decree that Christians should be used as human torches to light the garden parties of the elite in Rome. Such governments, we think, are part of some distant, barbaric antiquity from long ago and from places far, far away. But we know even now that there are more Christians being killed in the world today for their faith in Christ than at any time in history. And in our own land, in our own culture, the winds of opposition to the things of God and the designs of God and the people of God are starting to blow. But we are still told to submit to the government. God says it's His institution and we are to respond to it Therefore, accordingly. And if we don't, we are resisting God. This is the general principle, brothers and sisters. This is the basis. Jesus himself willingly went to the cross and didn't utter a word, all while treated entirely unjustly. Paul exposed his neck, and the human government cut off his head. God is behind government. And to rebel is to rebel against Him. Now, just to tie a bow on that bit there, we simply cannot rightly understand the exceptions to this and rightly apply them from a humble heart of knowledge until we understand how absolutely 
the basic principle is presented and embrace it and are shaped by it. The third bit of his basis for the general command in verse 1, it's the last part of verse 2, and those who resist will incur judgment. Those who resist are to be punished by God's design. Punishment. There's punishment. There is a consequence for rebelling against the law, for transgression of the law in this life, in these nation states and cultures, civilizations from those authorities. And I think this is Paul's primary meaning here, but also more broadly in the end on Judgment Day. If that is a sin against God, there's judgment now and in the end. Now, I, uh, I want to move quickly through my second and third points in verses 3 through 7, and I want to add a fourth point in which I'll present more on the exceptions and the place of a need for disobedience and some help on how to think about that. But let's, let's do points two and three, and it'll be somewhat quickly. Point two, verses three and four, the role of human government. The role of human government. Let's read verses three and four then. Be asking yourself, what is the role of human government by God's design? For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, diakonos, the minister, the servant. He is the servant of God, an avenger. Boy, that's a, quite a word. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So, this is not that hard to understand. I don't think government serves to restrain evil by God's design. And don't you benefit from that, given that I'm assuming you're not on the on the punishment end of that, you're benefiting from the threat of it in the lives of everyone else around you. Therefore, you have peace. Government punishes for the purpose of restraining evil. When punishment is effected properly, it does restrain evil. The point that he's making is that as a general rule, you don't ever have to fear the authorities if you do what's good. As a general rule. But if you do what's evil, authority should make you fear. You should be afraid of the authorities because they act powerfully and swiftly. There should be a certain healthy fear if you're doing what is evil. But if you're doing good, you have nothing to be afraid of, generally speaking. Do what is good, and when the government is working as it should, you will have nothing to fear. And who is Paul writing to again, remember? He's writing to Christians in Rome. We certainly wouldn't say that that was a fair and just and good government. They massacred rebels, upstarts. They could be extremely cruel. 
The story of the Caesars, again, is a story of sinful humanity gone wild. And it was the Romans who executed Jesus Christ before Paul ever wrote this. It would be a Roman soldier one day under the authority of Rome who would pick up an axe, as I mentioned earlier, and and chop Paul's head off. The very Paul who wrote those verses who said every government is instituted by God, including the one chopping off his head right at that moment. That doesn't mean that what they did to Jesus Christ was a noble act or what they did to Paul was a righteous act. It wasn't. But the institution of government with all of its failures and abuses is nonetheless designed by God for the protection of life and property, the repression of evil, and the rewarding of virtue and good. All of this under God's total and meticulous sovereignty for His good purposes. Point three, the dynamics of this obedience, verses five, six, and seven. Verse 5 indicates the depth of obedience which is required of us. It reads, verse 5, Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, as he's just written about, but also for the sake of conscience. We are to be in subjection not just because we are afraid of being punished, but because, unlike the world, we understand that the state is divinely instituted and that rulers are Wittingly or unwittingly, God's servants. Christians are able to see the big picture because we have the Word of God and we have God's Spirit. And thus, through our informed consciences, we are able to live in a profound, deep subjection. How does it work out practically? Well, verses 6 and 7 give a little of that. Verse 6 For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. And that's one of the ways that the rubber really meets the road, isn't it, for us? But it was the same for the Romans, who were probably more likely to be exorbitantly taxed than we, although perhaps that's an argument to be had these days, I'm not sure. But the Roman Christians were to pay their taxes, even if viewed as unjust, Understanding that government authorities are God's servants. And verse 7 then ties the bow on this matter of obligation. Verse 7 reads, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, and now he's broadening out, isn't he? Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Sounding like Peter at that point, honor the emperor. As Christians, we may really dislike the politics of a particular person in office at a particular time. We may be disgusted by such a person's scandalous conduct or words, but none of this at all removes our obligation to respect the office. The office exists by the design of and at the discretion of God, and the man is placed there by God. Honor the emperor. Now, more on exceptions and the place of a need for disobedience and some help on how to think about that. This is the fourth point, and I just want to share some things with you, uh, some, uh, a quote or two and a, and a little story 
Uh, first, I want to share a quote with you. Well, let's call point four Christian civil obedience some help. Christian civil obedience, disobedience. Christian, should I start again? Christian civil disobedience some help. This is Tom Schreiner, a very faithful theologian and biblical commentator. I, I respect him very much. He writes helpfully, quote, on our text, this text is misunderstood if it is taken out of context and used as an absolute word so that Christians uncritically comply with the state no matter what is being demanded. What we have here is a general exhortation that delineates what is usually the case. People should normally obey ruling authorities. The text is, is not intended as a full-blown treatise on the relationship of believers to the state. We have the whole Word of God for that. It is a general exhortation, rather, setting forth the typical obligations one has to civil authorities. Indeed, Paul envisions a situation in which the governing authority carries out its task by punishing evildoers and rewarding those who do what is good. Paul was keenly aware that the ruling authorities had put Jesus to death, and as a student of the Old Testament, he was well-schooled in the evil that governments had inflicted on the people of God. It was simply not his intention to detail here the full relationship of believers to the government. Paul would not disagree with the call to obey God rather than rulers when they attempted to squelch the preaching of the apostles, the preaching of the gospel. Nor would he dispute the claim that the state can function as an evil beast, as in Revelation 13, since John's teaching there stems from Daniel 7, which Paul knew, and Paul himself expects an evil ruler to arise, 2 Thessalonians 2. The intention in Romans is to sketch in the normal and usual relationship bedrock between believers and the ruling power. Christians should submit to such authority and carry out its statutes unless the state commands believers to do that which is contrary to the will of God, end quote. Now, I shared those two exceptions earlier. Now, I want to share with you a story. It's called the, the Brave Example of a Country Pastor, but I think it can be helpful to each of us to flesh out when, when do you know? When do you know? How do you know when those two exceptions uh, apply to your situation? Well, let's look at, at an example. It's a, a guy by the name of Paul Schneider. Let me read this to you. The brave example of a country pastor. Paul Schneider was one faithful Christian who did not compromise with the Nazis and through whom the Lord spoke, first from his prison cell and then from his grave. Schneider was a Reformed German pastor of two churches in the small neighboring towns of Dickenscheid and Wamrath in west-central Germany. Simply because he did not allow the Nazi minority within these churches to act on their, the on their ideology in matters that concerned the church, the Gestapo arrested him on May 31, 1937, and kept him in prison without charge for eight weeks. When they finally released him, they gave him a deportation order, as it was called, that prohibited his return to his congregations, an order that he promptly tore to pieces in the presence of the Gestapo officials. As he explained in a letter written to the Reich Chancellery in Berlin, 
The charges of injustice and rebellion leveled against him were unproven in a court of law and were untrue. Therefore, he would not obey the Gestapo order to stay away from his churches. God had placed him in charge of these congregations, and they wanted and needed him to return to them. He had made solemn vows to them before God at his installation, and he had no intention of breaking those vows. Schneider knew that the course of disobedience he had undertaken was very dangerous, and he lists in his letter the consequences of, quote, threats, fines, arrest, detention that he could face as a result of his actions. He was also fully aware of Romans 13.1, our text, the general broad command. He was also fully aware of Romans 13.1, a verse that had been thrown in his face multiple times by the Gestapo. His reply, quote, Even if the punishments are applied, I still know that God will establish justice for all who suffer injustice and that he will also judge between me and my government on his day of judgment as to the obedience we owe according to God's word in Romans 13.1, a verse they held against me during my deportation and as to the disobedience that is commanded according to God's word in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men a verse to which I also appealed when I refused to accept my deportation. The story goes on. He concludes his letter by reminding the Reich Chancellery that the Lord of the church is also the Lord of the government and that his decision to obey his Lord and theirs rather than their instructions is the right course. He wrote, He has given the government the worldly sword to punish the wicked, and to protect the righteous, but he has given the church the spiritual sword of his holy and eternal word until God's kingdom comes in eternal and perfect righteousness when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself will be both priest and king. King. The story continues. On the Sunday that Schneider returned to his church, he was arrested immediately and imprisoned. He was sent to the concentration camp of Buchenwald, where he insisted on preaching the gospel through his cell window, refused to salute the Nazi flag, and on Hitler's birthday would not remove his cap in honor of the Fuhrer. This was not a refusal to repay the obligation of honor to government officials, because no real obligation existed in this case, he argued. Despite their murderously enforced claims to the contrary, Hitler and the National Socialists were due no honor. You be the judge of that. story concludes, Schneider's courage and integrity were repaid with brutal beatings, torture, and finally, on July 18, 1939, death by lethal injection, a means of execution designed to hide his murder behind the mask of medical treatment. At any point during his detention, he could have been released and returned to his wife and four small children whom he dearly loved had he simply agreed to abide by the Gestapo's orders not to pastor the two little country churches where God had placed him. Schneider had a clear and exegetically sound understanding of Romans 13, 1 through 7. The church should leave to God the judgment of the governing authorities and obey them as far as possible. That is, if possible, 
Paul says in chapter 12, 18, to the extent that it is up to you, live at peace with all human beings. But disobedience is the only path for the church when government policies and officials perversely require Christians to abandon their witness to God's lordship over the entire earth and to abandon their calling of showing love to others. Then you must disobey. End story. Well, do we not live with this tension, this absolute command, exceptions, but when? Knowing that the Word of God reigns over our entire lives and the ordering of the world, we must deeply know and consider these texts, brothers and sisters, even as the dark clouds now descend over this country and culture. And we must pray for wisdom that when our time should come, when we too might have to decide how it is that we are to honor God in the face of persecution by a government, will we know what to do and what to say? Christians have been faced with this throughout history. We've had a respite, haven't we, in this country. People like Justin Martyr, a long time ago, wrote, things like this, quote, Everywhere we, more readily than all men, endeavor to pay to those appointed by you, government, the taxes, both ordinary and extraordinary, as we have been taught by Jesus. We worship only God, but in other things we will gladly serve you, acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men, and praying that with your kingly power you may be found to possess also sound judgment praying for their leaders, unjust leaders at the time. And Clement of Alexandria, one last one. A prayer. Thou, Master, hast given the power of sovereignty to them, the government, through thy excellent and inexpressible might, that we may know the glory and honor given to them by thee and be subject to them in nothing resisting thy will. And to them, Lord, grant health and peace, concord, firmness, that they may administer the government which, which uh, administer the government which thou hast given them without offense. For thou, heavenly Master, King of eternity, hast given to the sons of men glory and honor and power over the things which are on the earth. Do thou, O Lord, direct their counsels according to that which is good and pleasing before you, that they may administer with piety and peace and gentleness the power given to them by thee and may find mercy in your eyes. Look at how they pray for unjust rulers. Through Jesus Christ, we can live out our duty to obey as described in the Word of God, and we can also fulfill our duty to disobey when it is the will of God to do so. Uh, one little, one more Nazi tidbit. And I'm done. Just a couple sentences. Another pastor by the name of Martin Niemöller. When it became clear that the Nazis were pursuing now these racist, terrible policies, Pastor Martin Niemöller continued to preach the truth and as a result was thrown into prison. The prison chaplain, the prison chaplain, Upon visiting Niemöller, asked, 
What brings you here? Why are you in prison? To which Niemöller replied angrily, And brother, why are you not in prison? Oh, that the Lord will give us wisdom in these things and that we will know what to say and what to do for His glory and our ultimate good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, for granting wisdom. We pray for more that we might discern and live for Your glory. May each of us consider these things, consider Your Word, and think on these things, and thereby be renewed in our thinking and not conformed to this world in relation to our thinking on and relationship to and submission to the state. May you be glorified by the lives of your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.